Jeremiah chapter 40. In this particular chapter, Jeremiah remains in Judah. Gedaliah is going to be made the ruler. Look at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after, after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. When he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah, who were carried away captive to Babylon. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has pronounced this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said. Because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice. Therefore, this thing has come upon you. And now look, I free you this day from the chains that were on, in your, on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come and I'll look after you. But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. So all the land is before you. Wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go, go there. Now, while Jeremiah had not yet gone back, Nebuzaradan said, Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has made governor over the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever it seems convenient for you to go. So the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah. And the son of Ahiakim to Mizpah and dwelt with him among the people who were left in the land. And when all the captains of the armies who were in the fields, they and their men heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, governor in the land. And had committed to him men, women, children and the poorest of the land who had not been carried away captive to Babylon. Then they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, Yohanan or Johanan and Jonathan, the sons of Kareah, Sariah, the son of Tanhumet, the sons of Ephai, the Netophathite, and Jazaniah, the son of Mahakathite, and their men. I know these guys, the names sound like they should be transformers, huh? Now I lost my place. Verse 9, And Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, took an oath before them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will indeed dwell at Mitzpah and serve the Chaldeans who come to us. But you gather wine and summer fruit and oil. Put them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Jews who were in Moab among the Ammonites and Edom and who were in all the countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah and that he had set them over Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, then all of the Jews returned out of all the places where they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mitzpah and gathered wine and summer fruit in abundance. Moreover. Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah at Mitzpah. And he said to him, Do you certainly know that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Netanya, to murder you? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, did not believe them. 
Then Johanan, the son of Korea, spoke secretly to Gedalia and Mitzvah, saying, Let me go, please, and I will kill Ishmael, the son of Netanya, and no one will know it. Why should he murder you so that all the Jews who are gathered to you would be scattered and the remnant in Judah perish? But Gedalia, the son of Ahiakim, said to Johanan, the son of Kariah, You shall not do this thing, for you speak falsely concerning Ishmael. In the next few chapters of Jeremiah, we're given the release of Jeremiah and then the return of a group of resistance fighters or refugees who are trying to put together a coalition in order to survive. Remember, for years, Jeremiah has prophesied. The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to destroy the city. God's judgment is going to take place. Many of you are going to be taken captive. Only a remnant is going to remain. The captivity is going to last 70 years. God has a plan and a purpose. God has unfinished business with the people of Israel and the people of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. In the next chapter, we're going to learn of the assassination of the governor by Ishmael. And so the Babylonians attempt to help provide the genesis of a stable local government. Now, remember what has happened. The city is destroyed. A group of captives have already been taken and led away. Jeremiah has found himself, unfortunately, in the wrong line and wound up in captivity with a group of prisoners. Jeremiah knows that God has promised a future restoration in the land. Let's join Jeremiah. It says the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah who were carried away captive to Babylon. Jeremiah was a prisoner in Jerusalem when the city was captured. Somehow he winds up with a group of men and women And they're led captive to the city of of Ramah. Jeremiah was released and given freedom by the king of Babylon. But somehow he was rearrested and then taken captive. And you can imagine he has already suffered. He's been at the ministry for 40 plus years. His hair is snow white. He has the scars of incarceration. He's emaciated. The imprisonment has taken its toll on him. And now he's preparing for a long march to Babylon, which is going to be over 600 plus miles. And he's an old man. Jeremiah is going to be given a choice of going to Babylon or being care where he's going to be cared for by the king of Babylon or staying with the people. Now, if you've been following along in the book of Jeremiah, you already know that he has a shepherd's heart. And because he has a shepherd's heart, he's going to choose a shepherd's path. He's going to remain with the people. But automatically, this should cause a light to go on inside of your own head and your own heart. You see, 
Our choices tell us something about ourselves, don't they? This, this afternoon on my radio program, an eight-year-old boy called me and he said, Hey, if God's such a smart God, what, if he knew that, that Adam and Eve were going to sin, why in the world would he create all of this stuff? It's a great question coming from an eight-year-old. If God knows all of these bad things are going to happen, why in the world would he even put these things in motion? And I told him that God created us with the ability to choose or choose otherwise. God gives us choices. And the Lord is opening the door for choices for Jeremiah. And he opens the door of choices for you. You get to make choices about where you're going to go, what you're going to study, who you're going to. Well, some of you have already made the choice who you're going to marry. And so just live with it. But others of you have all kinds of choices of where you can go and what you can do. And your choices say something about you. Your choice of who you're going to love and your choice of who you're going to serve and your choice of how you're going to love and serve the Lord. Your choice of how you're going to live your life and how you're going to accomplish your ministry. And so the choices that you make says something about yourself. And in verse 2 it says, And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has pronounced doom on this place. You're probably thinking, Jeremiah's going, Have you been getting my podcast? How do you know all of this stuff? He says, Now the Lord has brought it. And it's done just as he said, because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice. Therefore, this thing has come upon you. Question, does the captain of the guard really believe that? Remember his name, Nebuzaradan. Remember what it means? The butcher. The slaughterer. Now, think about this for just a moment. Here's Jeremiah. He's just been chained. The butcher, the slaughterer, says to him, hey, you know what? Think about the Lord, your God, has pronounced this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said. Here is a pagan butcher saying what Jeremiah has been saying. The statement probably has more to do with political awareness than personal conviction. Is it? certain that he knows what he's talking about. Clearly, he's politically astute enough to know, I've heard about you, Jeremiah, and I've heard about your preaching, and I've heard about the prophecies, and I've heard how you told the people, look, don't resist the plan and the purpose of God. This judgment has come because you've rebelled and you've disobeyed God. In his book, A Quick Overview of the Bible, Douglas Jacoby writes, quote, If the Israelites had lived by the law of the Lord, they would have fulfilled their mission to be a light to the nations. They would have enjoyed a deep and rich relationship with her God. God, And they could have avoided centuries of heartache and dislocation and alienation. Yet the Lord doesn't force us to follow him. We always have a choice. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Joshua 24, 14. Remember when when Joshua says, choose this day. Who you're going to serve. Pick a side. Have you done exactly that? Have you 
picked aside. It says in verse 4, And now look, I free you this day from the chains that were on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come and I'll look after you. But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. See, all the land is before you. Wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go, go there. The the pagan officer is preaching a sermon that sounds strangely like a believer. Wearsby points out, it must have been embarrassing for the Jews to hear from a pagan prince that they were sinners. How tragic that the world sees our sin. There's few things that are more difficult to bear than when your unbelieving family and your unbelieving friends and the unbelieving world says, you're a Christian? You're a Christian? Then why aren't you acting like one? Why aren't you speaking like one? Why aren't you serving like one? How is it that you don't appear to be any different from the unbeliever? (laughs) Wearsby writes, As God's people, we have to bow in shame when the world publicly announces the sins of the saints. Unquote. Few things are more embarrassing, is it? Than when a so-called Christian winds up on TV. And they've acted in a way that's so inconsistent. What they profess to believe. And so here is a pagan prince. And remember what we've already pointed out. Who's Jeremiah's family? The people who live in Judah and Jerusalem. What did they do? Put him in jail. Who are the enemies? The Babylonians. And look at how he's being treated. The Lord sent prophets to speak to God's people. The prophet Amos said, the Lord has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? It says in Amos chapter 3 verse 8. The reoccurring themes and the reoccurring messages were don't compromise with the pagan world around you. Resist the allure of this world and its riches. Turn back to the Lord and the law of the Lord. Faith and ethics are inseparable. Take care of the poor and the needy and the destitute. There's hope for people who will turn from their sin. But judgment awaits the people who won't turn from their sin. Over and over and over again, the message was preached. By the way, was Jeremiah violating his own message? God revealed that the future was with those who were going to Babylon. You'll remember earlier in the book of Jeremiah, he had a vision of figs. Bad figs and good figs and the good figs were the ones who went to Babylon and the bad figs were the one who stayed in the land. Jeremiah knew how to discern the will of God and Jeremiah knew how God loved the people and he loved the land. So why doesn't Jeremiah go to Babylon? Why will he Elect to stay with the poor and the destitute 
and the broken and the people who are trying to take the ashes of their lives and put it back together. We know that Ezekiel was taken to Babylon in 597 B.C. and that he would start his ministry some five years later from Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2. We know about Daniel and how Daniel will be taken to Babylon in 605 B.C. I'm going to suggest to you that there are prophets who are going to be sent into the exile in order to minister to the people who are in the exile. But God is giving Jeremiah permission to remain with the people in the land. And you might be wondering what God has for you. Why would God have some of you stay here? And why would God have some of you go? And why would God begin to lay on your heart the opportunities for ministry? I'm going to suggest to you that for Jeremiah, remember, he had to make difficult decisions at the beginning of his ministry and he had to make difficult decisions at the end of his ministry. And you might find yourself at the very beginning of your ministry and you might find yourself in the middle of your ministry. And for some of you, you might find yourself towards the end. But whatever it is, God gives you A huge amount of freedom. He'll begin to impress upon your heart. Where should I go and what should I do and how will God use my unique gifts in order to expand the kingdom of God? Jeremiah might have had a much easier life if he had remained a priest instead of occupying the office of prophet. In old age, Babylon sure looks a lot more comfortable. But Jeremiah will choose To remain in the land of his fathers. He's a shepherd. He's not a hired hand. And in verse 5, look what it says. Now, while Jeremiah had not yet gone back, Nebuzaradan said, Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has made governor over the cities of Judah and dwell with him among the people or go wherever it seems convenient for you to go. So the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. Look, think about this for just a moment. Jeremiah had found himself in the wrong line, going in the wrong direction. God rescues him. Puts a man in authority in his life and says, look, you have freedom. I'm not here to tell you what to do. You know, so many people come to me and they say, tell me what I should do. I said, I'm not God. I'm not here to tell you what to do. There's a God in heaven. If you'll listen to him, he'll speak to you. He'll communicate with you. He'll reveal the plans and the purposes that he has for you. It was in Babylon's interest that the prophet Jeremiah returned to Gedaliah. Why? Remember, there's a provisional government in a in a destroyed city, in a destroyed land. It's not in Babylon's best interest that this thing be just a wasteland. In order for it to be have some sort of economic value, it has to be cultivated. And they need a stable government. And if they're going to have a stable government, it makes sense to have a person on staff who hears from God and is willing to communicate with the provisional government. It's also in Babylon's interest to have the prophet's favor. 
If this guy really does hear from God, if he really does have a message from God, doesn't it make sense not to antagonize the God he serves? This guy who's not a believer by any stretch of the imagination says, you know, you you should do what you want to do. Hey, that's a safe answer. Jeremiah's people had made him a prisoner. The enemy, the enemy Babylon grants him freedom. You know, there's an interesting passage of Scripture. Many of you are familiar with it in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 17. Remember where it says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. You know, when your ways please the Lord, Even the people who don't necessarily like you or even who see themselves as antagonistic toward you will leave you alone. And look what happens. Jeremiah receives food. He receives rations. He receives a gift. I'm going to suggest to you that this is probably money. He's given a certain amount of money and they let him go. It says in verse 6, Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakam, to Mizpah, and dwelt with him among the people who were left in the land. Gedaliah, remember, is the provisional governor, and the word Mizpah means watchtower. And there were several cities in the province of the north and the south and the east and the west named Mizpah. So some scholars suggest that this is the Mizpah in Benjamin near Ramah, not far from Jerusalem. Some archaeologists identify this with Tel in Nazbeh, which has an elevation of about eight miles north of Jerusalem, or it may have been about four and a half miles north and west of Jerusalem. The whole point is Jerusalem is a cesspool with dead bodies and ashes everywhere. And the provisional government is starting to gather. The Babylonian king has named Gedalia to be the governor. And so people are starting to gather around this particular man. And so Jeremiah goes where the people are. The hurting people, the desperate people, the poor people, the needy people. And look what else it says in verse 7. Jeremiah's reassurance, it says, And when all the captains of the armies who were in the fields, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, governor in the land, and had committed to him men, women, children, and the poorest of the land, who had not been carried away captive to Babylon, then they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Netanya, Johanan and Jonathan, the sons of Korea, Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, the sons of Ephai, the Netophathite, and Jazaniah, the son of Maacathite, and they and their men. Here's the whole idea. These men that are listed, the five men that are listed, these are generals, leaders who had, who had escaped, if you will, and who, who were hiding out. These were roving bands of freedom fighters. 
These were resistant freedom fighters who had made their way out into the field. And so the governor senses their hesitancy to come out of hiding and come out into the open and help rebuild the nation. In other words, there's this this sense of suspicion. Can I trust this guy who the king of Babylon has made the provisional governor of a makeshift government as we're trying to put together a plan to rebuild the nation? Johanan, by the way, means the Lord is gracious and he's loyal to Gedaliah. Later on, we see that he warns of Ishmael's plot. When Gedaliah ignores the warning, he leads the expedition that will eventually defeat Ishmael. And he, he is one of the guys who asked Jeremiah to pray for divine guidance when the Lord counseled about remaining in Judah. And so Johanan was among the leaders, and he might have even been the chief of the leaders, who organize and leads the people. We know that that's going to happen because as we continue our study in the book of Jeremiah, it's this man who is going to lead the people in their flight to Egypt, and they're going to drag Jeremiah with him. And Sariah means the Lord has striven or ruled. And he, like the sons of Ephai, come from a town called Netophah, a village near Bethlehem. And Ephai means flying or bird or dark, but it could mean fatigued or gloomy. But to make a long story short, the whole point becomes a group of men come together and they begin to ask and answer the question, who are we going to follow? How are we going to think about the circumstances that we find ourselves? Now, you need to think about what's going on in the text. For literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been a nation. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Israel to the north had broken off. Judah to the south remained intact. But they're living in a world where their life as it once was, was over. Their city as it once was, is destroyed. Their temple is gone. They don't have a Judah anymore. They're not a nation. We had a little slight peek at that in the 1980s. Do you remember when the former Soviet Union collapsed? I mean, I grew up in a world where in the in the late 50s, in the early 60s, when I was going to, to elementary school, we would have sirens come, come on and we would have nuclear alerts. We would we were told to get underneath our desks in, in the event of a nuclear catastrophe. There was there was a cold war between the Soviet Union and the United States of America. And if you would have asked someone in 19 can you imagine that in just 10 years, what, what used to be the so, former so, the Soviet Union is going to collapse, it's going to disappear, it's, it's going to cease to exist? What if once someone said to you, the United States of America, the one that you grew up in, the 50 states, you know how you have an East Coast and the Midwest and you have a West Coast and the North and the South. What if someone told you that in the not too distant future, the United States of America no longer exists? It's unthinkable, isn't it? And that's the world in which they're living in. They're living in a world where everything that they knew and everything that they understood was gone. 
And it says, and Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, took an oath before them and their men saying, do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Now, listen to that line of Gedaliah, because that's the exact same line that was used in the book of Jeremiah earlier. As Jeremiah said, look, if you don't resist, if you submit to the king of Babylon, the city doesn't have to be destroyed and we don't all have to lose our life. But remember, in rebellion and resistance, they refuse to do it. Gedaliah repeats, in a sense, the words of Jeremiah. He says, dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. Why? Because, again, remember, God has given a promise. The captives are going to return. God has unfinished business with the people of Judah and Jerusalem. There's a prophetic future that awaits. And God is going to take even the circumstances of our life to build that future. And sometimes you find yourself in a circumstance where it looks like your life is over. But there's a series of events that God is allowing to happen because he has a plan and a purpose He says, as for me, I will indeed dwell at Mizpah and serve the Chaldeans who come to us. But you gather wine and summer fruit and oil, put them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Now, remember, remember, remember that all of the environment around Jerusalem has been under siege for two and a half years. The fields have laid barren, untilled. If you've ever been in a vineyard. If you've ever been in an apricot orchard or a peach orchard or or a fruit orchard, if you if you've ever been in one of those circumstances, you would know that even if people don't go there and pick the fruit, is the fruit going to continue to grow? Yeah. Some of it's going to die. Some of it's going to grow. The rain is going to come. They're going to grow wild. There's going to be some stuff left. And so he says to them, we, we think Jerusalem fell in early July or August. Nebuzaradan arrives a month later to set up a military government. It appears that the summer harvest hadn't been gathered. It would usually have been gathered at the beginning of the summer. The war meant the fields were neglected. So he says, look. Go out back into the fields. Let's start making a provision Gather the wine, the summer fruit and the oil. The instructions are in effect this. Look, live in the land. Be fruitful. Live in peace with each other and with Babylon. When you find yourself in a difficult circumstance, what's the best course of action? Do I need to tell you? Figure out a way to stay alive. Figure out a way to stay alive. And then we're going to walk into the future. Paul the Apostle gave similar instructions in the book of Romans. Remember, when they were living under difficult circumstances, under immense persecution, he basically said, so far as it's possible, live at peace with all people. This is why I get annoyed on my radio program when people call me up and they want to pick a fight with me. Why would you want to do something like that? So far as it's possible, live at peace with all people. You're at home. You pick a fight with your husband. You pick a fight with your wife. You pick a fight with your children. You pick a fight with your neighbor. 
You pick a fight with your friends. Hey, look. When you're in a bad circumstance, in a difficult circumstance, figure out a way to survive. So far as it's possible, don't draw attention to yourself. Live at peace. Verse 11 says, likewise, when all the Jews who were in Moab, among the Ammonites, in Edom, and and were in all of the countries, heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah, and he had set them over, over them Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan. Then all the Jews returned out of the places where they had been driven. Now, again, if you're unfamiliar with Middle Eastern geography, Moab and Ammon would be the southern part of Syria, the northern part of Jordan, and the southern part of Jordan. In your mind, if you have a Bible or if you have a book of maps and you look at that little strip of land called Israel and you go immediately east, all of the people who ran away into what was what would now be called Jordan, what would now be called Syria, what would now be called Lebanon, what would now be called Egypt, all of the Jews who made a fast and furious escape, they began to return. In other words, a provisional government is made. All of these Jews who are in hiding begin to return. They gather around. And again, this speaks of the fact that there's a sense of hope, of redemption, of a possibility of the the future. He says, then all the Jews returned out of the places where they'd been driven to Gedalia at Mizpah. They gathered wine and summer fruit. Look what it says. In Abundance. The new provisional governor repeats the words of Jeremiah's ser- sermon. Serve the Babylon- Babylonians. Live safely in the, in, the, in the land. What's the point for you and for me? A small ray of hope begins to come up. When you are in a burnt out, difficult situation... I don't know how to say this, but bluntly, if you've ever been in a difficult time, if your house has ever burnt down, I remember or if your home has been destroyed in a flood like Hurricane Katrina, if twin towers during 9-11 come down and things are just ruined. Do you know what you want more than anything? Do you want to know what you want more than anything when your house is burned down, when it has been flooded, when you've been the experience of a terrible tragedy? What you want more than anything is for life to return back to normal. You want to drink tea or coffee in your own bed. You want a, your normal routine. You want to go back to work. You want the kids to go back to school. You want the normal life that you used to have to return. And they want a normal life to return. But life is anything but normal for them. They've experienced devastation and they wonder how they're going to be able to rebuild their lives. Now remember... What the devastation in part was caused by their rebellion and disobedience. Do you think it makes good sense to rebuild your lives based on the former rebellion and disobedience? That doesn't make sense, does it? Doesn't it make sense that if you were walking in rebellion and in disobedience, that, 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 that this was now the time to put your hope and your confidence and your love and your affection And your interest in the things of God and what God would have for you? How do you go forward when you've lost your job, when you've lost 
the world that you've grown to love? How do you go forward? The Apostle Peter wrote to a group of Jews who were experiencing a similar thing in the New Testament, who were under persecution in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. You want to have a normal life, and it's not normal. So you have to focus your attention on what's true and what's real and what's certain. There is a God. There is a heaven. There is forgiveness of sin. We have to go forward into the future as God's plans and purposes unfold. And so these people are going to have some hard choices to make. There's going to be obstacles and difficulties, but they're providing the core group of a future world in which the Messiah is going to show up. And look at verse 13. It says, moreover, Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedalia at Mitzpah. So there seems to be this authentication of this man and the ministry. Bible teachers suspect that this report might have come as, as, as late as five years later. Um, other Bible scholars think that this is all taking place in a compressed period of time. We... Know from Jeremiah chapter 52, verses 28 through 30, which speaks of three different Babylonian deportations in 597 B.C., in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem fell, in 581 B.C. Later, in the next chapter, we're going to learn about Gedalia's assassination. So whether he was the provisional government for a very short period of time, we're not told. If it was for as long as five years, we're not told. But it says, and he said to him, do you certainly know that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, that's modern Jordan, has sent Ishmael, the son of Netanya, to murder you? Already there's intrigue. Why would the king of the Ammonites send a hitman to take out the provisional governor? Well, we know, again... That there was a conference that was held before the king of Babylon showed up as the groups of countries around that area tried to figure out a way to resist the Babylonian intrusion. And it could very well be that the king of the Ammonites thinks that Gedalia is a puppet governor. And so he's trying to create instability and insecurity and, and frustrate Babylon so the ancient Mossad, the Israeli secret police, do some investigation. And by the way, Josephus, the writer of history, relates, the, again, the third deportation of Hebrews to Babylon um, as a part of a general expedition against the north, which was modern Syria, and the east, which is modern Jordan, and the south, which is Egypt. And that the Hebrew captives were actually taken from Egypt and yet another Deportation. So Gedalia, he can't bring himself to believe that a patriot and a Hebrew would do such a thing. But Johanan understands that there's a difficulty. 
It says, then Johanan, the son of Koreas, spoke secretly to Gedalia and Mitzvah, saying, let me go, please. And I will kill Ishmael, the son of Netanya, and no one will know it. I'll take care of this. You want I should get rid of this threat. Now, again, he gives the reason. Why should he murder you so that all the Jews who are gathered to you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah perish? In other words, is the threat real? Well, it is. Is it an unfounded threat? No, it's a founded threat. There's a plot to assassinate the provisional governor of Judah. Johanan says there is a threat to your life. And in order to mitigate this threat, I suspect that the best way to go forward is to eliminate the threat. Now, he offers to kill him in order to save the governor's life. And I need you to understand something. Is this a good idea? Is it a good idea for Johanan to kill this guy? I'm going to suggest to you it's probably a bad idea. But it's a good idea to reinforce the security around the provisional government. Is targeted assassination just under the threat a good idea? Now, I need to point something out. Johanan is one of these guys who starts off really, really good and is going to become really, really bad really, really quickly. Johanan understands how important Gedalia is to the group of people who are left behind to begin the process of building a nation. And he also understands that if the governor is killed, Babylon could retaliate. The Jews who have returned to provide some sort of meaningful existence will once again be scattered and hope will be smashed. Because the future of the Jews who remain in the land is dependent on a stable government and stable leadership. And remember, Gedalia is appointed governor, not king. Zedekiah is the last king in the last line of the line of David. There have been 21 kings. Together they reigned 514 years, six months Ten days, as recorded by Josephus in his histories. For 514 years, six months, ten days, there has been on David's throne a descendant of David. There won't be another king on that throne until the Messiah comes. Until Jesus, the son of David, comes. Now, all of a sudden, you understand why Matthew and his genealogy of Jesus is so exciting when you read the opening verse of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, an heir back on the throne. People want strong leadership. People need strong leadership. 
And people will question strong leadership and try to depose strong leadership when they want it for themselves. And in verse 16, look what it says. But Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, said to Johanan, the son of Kariah, you shall not do this thing. For you speak falsely concerning Ishmael. Like I said, Johanan will start off bold, courageous. Something will go wrong. He's pointing in the right way, but eventually he's going to point people in the wrong direction. We're not told how he knows about the assassination attempt. We're not told how he secured the information. But it's not paranoia when they really are after you. And they are really after him. And if Gedalia had listened to him, the governor's life might have been spared. But it should prompt you to ask yet another question. Well, why does Ishmael want to kill Gedalia? Well, Ishmael happens to be a direct descendant of David. Interesting. Ishmael is thinking, I am royalty. I deserve to be on this throne. We know that the king of the Ammonites hired him from verse 14. But there may have been more involved. Ishmael was unwilling to see the people submit to the king of Babylon even after the war was over. And Ishmael was a patriot, according to himself, a freedom fighter. But sometimes patriotism isn't just simply rooted and grounded in the love of country. Sometimes it's rooted and grounded in selfishness. We know that Ishmael was a direct descendant of David through Elishama. We'll know that in 41 verse 1 and 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 16. Um, as a matter of fact, it says, Now it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Netanya, the son of Elishama, of the royal family and of the officers of the king. This is how we know that he's a direct descendant of David. Is it possible that he felt like, again, he should be the one calling the shots. Johanan wants to kill him. Gedalia refuses the, the offer. And again, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. Gedalia was right to refuse the offer, or he was wrong. If he was wrong, it certainly is going to cost him his life. But he should have established a greater safety net. But he is going to actually invite Ishmael to eat with him in the next chapter. Which violates Middle Eastern custom that when you invite a person to come over, there's this unspoken rule. You don't kill each other. That makes sense to you, right? When you invite someone over for dinner, is the expectation that they're going to pull out a gun and shoot you? No. In Proverbs 11:14 we read for lack of guidance a nation falls but many advisors make victory sure. What what can we learn from this? That sometimes we're naive about our enemy's intentions. Sometimes we are naive. Gedalia is naive. He's thinking he's an Israeli patriot. 
This is, this is unthinkable. A direct descendant of the king involved in an assassination plot? It makes no sense. But Ishmael is a deceiver. And he would, in fact, plan and carry out the execution. By the way, in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, does Jesus warn us to be harmless as doves and wise as serpents? Yeah. In other words, is it a good idea for Christians to be naive? No. I mean, if somebody's following you in a dark alley with a baseball bat, what should you do? Run is the right answer. I know what some of you would do. You would turn around and give them a track and say, hey, do you know that God has a wonderful plan for your life? That might work. Gedalia trusted human nature. Gedalia trusted that people would act honorably. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought, this person's not going to rip me off? This person's not going to steal from me. This person's not going to act in a way that is a threat to me or my family. And then they do. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. It's a mistake to trust people for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. It's a mistake to trust people when you should be trusting the Lord. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to make you paranoid or suspicious. What I am trying to do is that there's a biblical kind of a trust that you need to cultivate, but then there's the kind of discernment that you need to exercise as you go forward in the plans and the purposes of God in the next chapter, which is going to go by quickly. Gedalia is going to sleep with the fishes. But we will talk more about that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we, we want to be discerning men and women. We want to trust. And Lord, we don't want to be naive. Lord, Paul wrote that we understand the schemes of the devil. But sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget that we have an enemy who isn't working for our good, but for our bad. And he's not looking for an opportunity to heal us, but to hurt us. And Heavenly Father, we know that the world is constantly inviting us. To trust people and things and circumstances that we have no business trusting. So Lord, we pray that you'll give us discernment on who and what to trust and when to trust them. Lord, we know that there's a little ray of hope that's beginning to emerge from the ashes of devastation that have taken place in Judah and Jerusalem. And Lord, we pray for the little rays of hope that begin to manifest themselves when people find themselves with a difficult illness or with the loss of a job or with a change in plans. Lord, we pray that 
you will give people wisdom and strength and courage to trust you, to go in a direction that's going to honor you. And we commit that to you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.